Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy. And I'm Steph. Though we try to make Cancer for Breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. So, while Megan does bear a striking resemblance to Amy, this is not Amy. (laughs) Our beloved Amy, my co-pilot, Um, had to back out at the last minute because she is with her very ill mother in a hospital room in Medford, Oregon. I know that she's watching right now. So hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Which is how we always start the podcast. (laughs) She's just not here to say hi, Steph. Um, I want to introduce Megan McCallum. Her pronouns are she, her. Megan is a writer with an amazingly helpful website. It's thriverwriter.com, where she writes for cancer support through diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. She's joining us to represent the single folks navigating the dating world during cancer and into survivorship and thrivership phases. And this is our producer. Listeners already know him. He is also my husband, Nathan. And without Amy here, we've pivoted to talking about relationships because obviously we all have them, whether they're romantic, they're peer-to-peer, they're family, their relationships with our kids, the relationships that our kids have with other kids of cancer adults. Um, it's, It's an important thing to foster a real sense of community, obviously. That's why we're all here. Um. So we can speak a little bit to the partner, romantic partner Mm -hmm. side, but Megan, you have a really important and really interesting perspective on being single. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that? (laughs) This being a topic on... I mean, (laughs) yeah, and what I would like to say right away is that... um, like this identity of, of being someone who's, who's gone through all these tough times. And, um, like, I'm also recently divorced. And so for a long time, I felt like, <laughs> yeah, you're divorced. And so that's, that's a perspective I, that, that's a perspective I think I, I just feel, um, compelled to share because if there's anyone who's feeling in an unhappy relationship, I think one of the best things that you can do for yourself is just, acknowledge that you deserve to be happy and if something isn't working for you it's it can be hard so so hard to get out and you might think that it's just like you don't um you know you you don't have the permission to get out or you know all these reasons but you can and you'll be better off for it so 100 percent. i think that cancer teaches us a lot about ourselves and what we are capable of enduring. And I think that weirdly, even though we know that statistics say women with cancer are often left by their partners, I would love to see some statistics on people with cancer finding a new purpose in life and realizing they don't need to deal with bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of shame also, like people... Um, 
who go through the cancer experience feel, well, they stayed with me. I owe it to them. I've got to do this. And, um, you know, it's such a clarifying moment in your life that you can see what's important, what's new, and what you actually want in life. And that. Yeah, somebody giving you the basic compassion and care that a partner gives you doesn't mean you have to be yoked to them for the rest of right. your life. Yeah. Um, you can just say, hey, thanks. That was Thanks for doing me a solid. And bye. Bye. <laughs> um, we will be talking more about relationship stuff when we get into the letters segment. But I just I wanted to give some shout-outs to some really amazing groups and organizations that I know are are available. Probably most of us have heard about them, but I I do hope that these are maybe going to be some new resources for some of you. Um, Clearly, we all know the value of peer-to-peer breast cancer support, Um, and I think it's so important that we have our own spaces to talk about that because we can really, I know this is a horrible joke, but we can like let our hair down um, or take it off if we want to. And really be real. Have the real, authentic conversations that we can't have with the general population, the cancer muggles, as as they like to be called, I think. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Um, so there, there was one really cool wellness retreat that was here exhibiting called Healing Pines Respite. And if you're local, it seemed really awesome. There are so many like local organizations throughout the country, but um, it's no-cost respite experiences for women throughout North Carolina. And I think she said it was like in kind of the general area too, not just as long as you could get there. Um, so it's for people currently in cancer treatment and up to three years after. So that's Healing Pines Respite. And we will, I'm, I don't know if any of you are podcast people, but we will um, be putting all of this in the show notes that um, goes up on our podcast feed. So you don't have to like write it all down or remember it. We do that for you. Um, there's also Little Pink Houses of Hope, which, um, yes, We went on a Little Pink Houses of Hope retreat in Lake Tahoe. It was the most shockingly awesome experience. Mm -hmm. They included our entire family. They had things for our kids. And um, we were in Lake Tahoe during a record snowstorm. 18 inches overnight, I think. and And they acted like it was their fault little pink houses of hope did and they just kept giving us like gift cards and presents and it was such a treat and i felt so taken care of and i know everybody else in my family did too um so that's little pink houses of hope their applications open every year please apply and keep applying until you get in because it's totally worth it Um, For the Breast of Us was also an exhibitor here, and obviously it's so important for women of color to have a safe space to talk about the unique challenges that come, yeah, with being a woman of color in the breast cancer community and obviously, like, in the world in general, but I know probably all of us white women know that um, the racial disparities in healthcare are abysmal, and I think it's incumbent on us also to try to mitigate that as much as we can and then let them (laughs) have their space to talk about how frustrating it is while we do the work. Um, So that's for the rest of us. They have um, tons of resources on their website. They've got directories. They've got events. They've got support groups, um, healing circles. If you're a woman of color or you know one who needs that, please 
pass along the info. Um, Fight Through Flights is also a black woman-specific retreat opportunity. So that's called Fight Through Flights. Um, and then YSC's LGBTQIA groups, Amanda Nixon, Literal Earth Angel, um, she has made this happen. The, the queer community does not have a lot in the way of breast cancer resources. And um, Amanda is just always so great at hyping the group and hyping opportunities for community and building community with queer people. We love Amanda. Yeah. We do love Amanda. <laughs> Also incredibly gorgeous, which is just not fair. Um, for kids, Camp Kesem. I could not say enough things. I would have to have a completely different podcast devoted to my love for Camp Kesem. Um, they do nationwide free camps. They're week-long camps for kids whose adults have cancer. So um, they do not, it doesn't have to be a parent. It could just be your adult. So um they are amazing. They're mostly run through state colleges, so I guarantee there is one near you. Um, and they do such a good job of keeping up the programming, keeping the connections alive with the kids throughout the year. Yeah, it's not so, only camps. Um, yeah. I just we live north of Seattle, and uh, I just took the kids. They had like kind of a winter fun day, and we took them down to the University of Washington, and they had little games, and there was trivia, and it was just kind of a, it was just a good time. And you're just in a room with people who get it, and all the kids understand that part of them, you know, part of each other. Um, and it was just really cute because they're all college students, and they were all excited. The counselors, the counselors sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. The counselors were college students that cut some uh, volunteers, um, and it was just really great. The kids had a blast. It was it was really awesome. Yeah, and I think it just can't really be overstated the ways that kids need this peer-to-peer contact. Even if you think, like, oh, well, I'm out from active treatment or whatever. Like, my kids probably don't need that support. They could still be the support. They could just be an example of a kid living their life after a parent's mm-hmm. cancer experience when the kid is still in the thick of it and feeling like, Will my family ever feel safe again? Your kid could be the one that's like, hey, we're cool now. It's fine. Or, you know, I'm metastatic. And so my kids went and they came back saying, my 11-year-old said, like, so-and-so's mom died, but she's okay. Like, she's she can still be happy. Um, which was just like, wow, I guess you needed to see that, obviously. Um, so that's really cool. I love Camp Kesem. Please, if you have kids, look into it. Um, and then the last thing I want to recommend is called the Entwine Dating App. April Stearns of Wildfire Magazine, who is also an amazing person. I don't know if she's still here, but woo, go April. We love you. Entwine is a dating app that's specifically for people who do not have intercourse, um, like PNV. So um, it's developed by a breast cancer survivor, apparently after her divorce. And so it's just a space for people with sexual differences, either due to pain or celibacy or uh, low sex drive or whatever. So that's kind of neat. I don't think it fills the entire need, obviously, of cancer people, because plenty of us still like to have penetrative sex. But... Um, if that's if you don't want to do that, that's perfectly valid, and maybe you would like to join their free dating app. Um, not SpawnCon, just <laughs> just a recommendation. Um, so, for the uninitiated, you may not know that we always do a letters segment on every episode of the podcast. 
And usually we have to rely on people writing in and then we read their letters, but we're here. And some of you brave, beautiful souls said you were willing to come up and read your letters live and in person in the flesh. Is that true? Is it true? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that you'll be reading letters to an empty auditorium. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. There's a live feed. People can see that there are actually human beings in this room. Um, But I would love to kick it off with Caitlin. Are you in the house? Caitlin, are you here? Yay! We're very accommodating here on this podcast. Um, I apologize in advance. This is like a long letter that I wrote. Uh, 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 (laughs) No, no, we do not accept. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wrote this actually like when I was getting chemo, I would just write in my phone notes to like journal instead of writing it down because I felt like it was more convenient for me. Um, And one night I was just really pissed off and tired of people telling me to stay positive. So that's kind of where I was coming from. Um, So I wrote, staying positive in the face of adversity is an extremely difficult task. As humans, we like to feel good and have been taught that certain emotions are more socially acceptable than others. Showing sadness and distress in public can be upsetting to others. And as a result, people internalize their grief, stress, and trauma, or find other ways of expressing it that are more or less socially acceptable. When it comes to chronic illness or cancer, prolonged human suffering is involved. Those who are diagnosed with conditions that threaten their very existence begin to stand face-to-face with their own mortality. This is not something that the average person has to encounter. For the most part, young people go about their lives as if they have an infinite amount of time. Even when losing a loved one, there's a brief moment of clarity of how life is so fragile, but then after time, um, it goes on and fades away. When one is faced with their own mortality and must continue living, it can be incredibly difficult to stay positive. People will encourage those with life-threatening illnesses to stay positive as if that's what's going to keep them alive. Whether they realize it or not, this puts a heavy weight on those living with chronic life-threatening illness. It's a marathon, not a sprint. To expect someone to stay positive all the time is first, unrealistic, and second, ignores their internal reality as if their internal reality is too scary for others to bear witness to. When an individual with cancer hears, I'm here whenever, stay positive, from friends and family, it's almost as if they're hearing, I'm going to tell you that I'm here to listen, but I don't actually want to hear your inner fears and worries because it's uncomfortable for me, so hang in there. (laughs) It can feel somewhat dismissive and honestly does more harm than good. What's wrong with being negative sometimes? There's no research that proves being positive increases a person's chances of survival. Let people process their fear and discomfort with having a scary diagnosis. If you're not emotionally capable of giving someone the space to express their fears and worries, then it's better not to say anything at all. It's totally fine to not have the capacity, but don't pretend to. As a young breast cancer survivor, I just want people to know that surviving an illness comes down to mostly environment and biology, not positivity. Yes. 
you. Thank you so much. You can take it. That's free for you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, obviously big, big, huge snaps to that one. Um, agree completely. No notes, <laughs> but, um, there is another letter that I feel like is a soulmate to this letter. And I would love to invite that letter's author to come up and read it as she has <laughs> indicated she's willing to do. Erin Perkins, you wonderful creature. Yes. Come on up, baby. Do you want to come up to the stage or would you like to be met in the middle? I'm just like chilling. Yeah. Dance your way up. I know. I yes. wish you had. I don't need it. I... Yeah, like a baseball player. Ladies and gentlemen, mistakes were made. I'm sorry about last night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for printing it. You're so welcome. I didn't know you were going to do that. I tried to. I tried to do best you are you. accommodating. That's right. My goodness. I wasn't lying. Hello, Megan. Hi. All right. We going? Just go. We're going. Just oh, do it. Sorry. Okay, dear people who love to use the phrase at least. I hope this letter at least finds you alive. <laughs> I know I was hanging on by a thread when you told me at least you got the good cancer. And at least they caught it early. Oh, yes. Now that you put it that way, I guess I will make sure to say... Or I will make sure to stay positive, because at least I'm alive for now. Actually, while I've got you, can you maybe respond explaining in detail what the definition of good cancer is? I don't think I know that one. But really, in the end, I'd love to offer you an alternative to your natural need to fill uncomfortable silence with platitudes. You have my, per my permission, at leaster, to take a deep breath and say nothing at all. Is it, in, is it in person when you, let me see, hold on. Is it in person when you hear about a cancer diagnosis or another unspeakable experience? Hugs are really the best. Are you on the phone or virtual? How about a sincere, I'm sorry, or an I'm here for you? No need to try and make this crappy thing better, that's in quotes. No need to try and wrap it up with a bow, just acknowledging its crappiness however you can. And if you start to say, at least, take that breath and redirect. Sincerely, your acquaintance. At least she has a new sense of purpose, Aaron. Please, yeah. So I was so happy to put these two letters together because, I mean, I, I'm metastatic, so I don't get a lot of at least. But do you? Were you at leasted? I was at leasted. Um, and I love that Aaron, part of Aaron's at least uh, list was at least they caught it early. And I really have trouble with that kind of phrasing because I was misdiagnosed for months and told that, it, you know, too young, it's not possible, it's definitely not cancer. And so um, when other well-meaning people say at least they caught it, I think, well, no, actually, I caught it. And it was, you know, it was months later, and it was a very um, difficult thing to 
you know, give credit to something, an experience that there was no at least about it for me personally. Yeah, so. Steph, you were at leasted though because you were also misdiagnosed. Oh, it's true. So you did get at leasted big time. It's true. In the beginning, I and then I really got to stick it to him. <laughs> and I said, it "Turns out I'm stage four, bitches." You got an upgrade. <laughs> Aren't you embarrassed? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but I mean, like, even cancer people do this, I think. Just the other week, in my most favorite, most cherished cancer support group, somebody did this. And it was because it is so hard to see somebody you care about struggling with something that you have absolutely no fix for, right? Like, it sucks. It's so hard and there's nothing you can do. There's literally nothing you can do. And so you want to try to find some way to make them feel better, but there's just not. And like, we all know that. And even the person who did it, like after she said like, Hey, just like try to stay positive. It's just a bump in the road. It was just, you could almost see through the internet, like the shame piling on her because she was just like, I know better. I know better than to say that. And so like, whatever, we're all going to say the wrong weird thing sometimes too, even though we're cancer people and we know better. But I think it's just so much about like, be willing to say like, Oh, I don't know why I said that. Or like, <laughs> yeah, you can just say and you messed up. Not doubling down and making it worse. Yeah. 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 You just have to struggle sometimes. One thing I found helpful is actually acknowledging everything you just said. Like if people say to me, like, I know I can't fix this for you. I wish I could, you know, I wish I could change your situation. I can't, but, um, I just want to put that out there and let you know that I'm here and whatever you want to share, however you want to be experiencing this right now, that's okay. And I'm here for you. Like, that's the best thing I could hear in that moment. So, yeah. And like, obviously you are all cancer people, you know this, but I think it helps me sometimes to hear like a script that I can hand people (laughs) be like, Hey, you wanted to know, you wanted some tips. Here you go. Yeah. Um, so we have an anonymous letter. Would you like to read it? Oh, sure. I didn't know. Here you go. Here you go. I'm sorry. You can tell I'm a bisexual because I have so many drinks. (laughs) 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 I've got my cup of water. I've got my bottle of water. I've got my reusable container of coffee. Sorry. No, no, we're good. good. (laughs) Hello. I'm a young breast cancer thriver from Michigan. I'd love to know how to deal with a lack of sex drive while on hormone blockers and having a total hysterectomy. I was married less than two years ago, and my drive is already gone. I feel terrible about it, and I would love some tips at bringing back that bringing that back into my relationship. It's your time to shine, babe. Oh boy! <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> this is hard. Um, I can relate to. So they said that it's um, recently married. Yeah, too? two yeah. years. So yeah, I can relate to that aspect, that timeline for sure. Um, I was diagnosed days after I got back from my honeymoon and, um, needless to say, like our sex life changed drastically, uh, very quickly. And we didn't really get any kind of like married bliss, like sex all the time. Like we didn't have that. And we went straight from honeymoon to like very ill. And, um, to me that was kind of, um, 
it was one of the turning points of like realizing that maybe this marriage wasn't going to work out for me at the time. You know, I didn't know way back then that I would end up getting divorced, but it definitely started forming some like a little bit of a snowball for me that like sexual, like our sexual relationship was something we had a lot of trouble navigating. And so I don't have a perfect example because like we, we didn't really find a great solution for us as a couple um, in our sex life. But for me, what I wanted to do is investigate that from a, a standpoint of like communication and just talking more about it for me personally that's what I needed is like I really wanted a sex life and I wanted that to be something I could still enjoy and I realized that for me that was going to involve a lot more communication than it had in the past and that was something that my partner just was not able to do for me and so that just provided a lot of clarity honestly that like I need to acknowledge that that's important for me and so I think I learned that lesson and that whatever my sex life looks like in the future, I need to make sure that it meets that requirement because it's just a part of who I am now. Um, and my partner was not able to give that to me. So, yeah. There's nothing better for feeling sexy and excited than high-pressure, high-stakes situation where you <laughs> think you're going to disappoint the person that you're with. So, uh, um, Such a turn-on. Yeah. Such a turn-on. <laughs> um, we have another letter that just goes so perfectly it's like a little lock and a key um tabitha adkins are you here would you like to read your letter would you like to be met back there do you want to come on up all down all right tabitha Yeah, I think it's so funny. Like, obviously, we joke about the high stakes, high pressure thing, but it's so true. It's really, really hard to get in in the mood and feel supported and and comfortable when you're like, oh, so so high pressure. I don't want to be disappointing. Tabitha, here you go. Hey, everybody. Hi. (laughs) Okay, I said, help, ladies. Since my diagnosis... I feel like I have totally lost my sex appeal. As a woman that was very confident going into my diagnosis at age 35, I feel like I have come out of the diagnosis not so confident. With the loss of my breast, full hysterectomy, hormone blockers, sitting hair, weight gain, and of course my lymphedema, I need help figuring out my mojo again and finding it. Please help. Desperate to find my mojo. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading that. I think that letter could have been written by like half of us here, I think. Um, I'm going to put that there. And um, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not negating your humanity, but I think you're absolutely gorgeous. So I am shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked that you feel that you've lost your sex appeal. I'm not coming on to you, don't worry, but I think that you're very sexy. (laughs) Um, I think something that we hear a lot in breast cancer spaces and from people who purport to be like experts in getting your mojo back is fake it till you make it. And I... Hey, fake it till you make it. I hate it so much. Fake it till you make it to me is coercion. Um, 
I think that there is nothing more detrimental to a healthy partnership, sexual or otherwise, than coercion. Um, enthusiastic consent, I think, is the most important thing for any sexual relationship. And, you know, like, I feel like people feel sexy and interested when they feel interesting to their partners. And they need to feel taken care of and supported and like full people whose humanity is being acknowledged. And then when that is out of the way, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like, it's very hard if you have no foundation to get to that point where you're willing to be vulnerable in like the most vulnerable way. Um, but once you feel taken care of supported, then you can like enjoy the entire buffet of human experiences. Um, and I guess like what I always want to know from people is like, what do you want from sex? Like, do you just want to get off? If that's the case, like get a magic wand, like get a good vibe. Um, and use that with your partner. Like if that's the goal, then do that. But If you want connection, if like the connection is the piece that you feel like is missing, then find ways to do the connection part. It does not have to be and may never include P and V or, you know, like penetrative sex or anything like that. Um, Non-penetrative sex play is fun. And, you know, if you take that orgasm off the table and see what happens like you might find that that's actually what you wanted like that's actually what you were missing and I think that's a much healthier version of fake it till you make it um because then you're not faking anything like you're you're doing the thing that's going to nurture both of you and nurture your relationship um and somebody I don't think it was my therapist though I do love to attribute lots of smart things to her so maybe it was um said, if you think no meal is complete without cake, lots of satisfying meals are going to end in hunger. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, that's like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think coming at it, you know, like as a co-survivor, I cannot speak obviously as a survivor, um, that a lot of people get tripped up in the, okay, it's over. We're going to go back to the way it was. Like your body, we're, you know, we're somehow going to, our expectations are, you know, five years ago, ten years ago. And you've got to meet your person where they are and remember that, like, they are still lovely and lovable and attractive as they are right now, uh, because that's why you picked them in the first place. Um, but, um, you know, somebody, uh, yeah, I don't know, as, as far as, like, yeah, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think finding something else, like, outside of sex that makes you feel really good about yourself and, like, really juiced up and, like, really just makes you feel useful like I think that kind of thing we tend to think like sex okay it has to be like how am I going to feel sexy but it's like about being fulfilled as a person and feeling confident and feeling like yeah I'm like cool right like I'm such a cool person I want to hang out with me and um, and I think that can be the, the inroad that you need, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and well, I, I really like what you were saying about, like, think about what you want, like, individually and as a couple. Like, there isn't one definition of, like, a, a healthy sex life, a, a satisfying sexual experience. Like, allow yourself some freedom to explore, like, what exactly that means for you. Because what it means for you, it, shouldn't, it doesn't matter for anybody else. If there's anybody else who's not involved in your sex life, it doesn't matter for them. So, like, just think about what you want. Right. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of us need to remind ourselves of that. Like, I personally am guilty of that, of thinking that, like, there's one way that sex needs to be, and, you know, if I don't have that, then it's not going to be satisfying, and that's just not true for me personally. So, I mean, allowing myself to be more open with that has been incredibly helpful. Yeah. I think, too, it's so funny when I think of, like, the times that I feel really unexpectedly great about myself. And I imagine lots of us have had this experience where, like, you're in, like, you go into the women's restroom or something, and there's, like, somebody in there, and they're just like, girl, like, yes, yes, yes. you look so good. And you're just like, you got me so much. And you're like, you look so good. And, like, you just leave feeling all, like, pumped up. And, like, I'm not having sex with that woman. <laughs> right. I mean... <laughs> She didn't ask, but I'm <laughs> um, just kidding. I'm not trying to have sex in public bathrooms. <laughs> that's illegal. Um, but you know, like that's the thing that like you just gotta feel feel good about yourself, and like that's. Yeah. And that, I think that's a sexy thing is to just own like what you want and, you know, what you want to give to, for somebody else too. Just allowing yourself that is sexy. I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've got an Anon letter. Um, I'm single and I'm ready to start dating. When do I tell the guy I'm dating that I had breast cancer? Do I have to tell them now or wait until we're committed to each other? Oh no. Yeah, right? Yeah. There were a lot of grumble there was grumbling. I heard yeah. audible grumbling. Audible yeah. grumbling. Oh yeah. boy, oh boy, oh boy. Not this guy again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't think, you know, you don't owe it to anybody to tell them anything. Um, obviously, I think it it can be tough if you find yourself in, like, a naked situation and, you know, you haven't gotten to a place where you've figured out what you want to share because then you're you're put on the spot. Right. And that's not like, I'm not worried about the guy. I'm worried about you and feeling, whoops, sorry, you, uh, you and feeling like you're, you know, in a place to end the encounter with feeling really good about yourself. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know this and I haven't had surgery or anything. So I would be in a really different, I could fake it. I could pretend to be a non-cancer person. I have passing privilege. Um, as a non-cancer person, but what do you think? Do you do you envision yourself telling people sooner or later? Or? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've thought about this a lot for sure, um, and I'm, I've just for the first time like started exploring the world of dating apps. So that's a whole thing. Um, and so for me right now, I guess what feels right is to not like, it's not explicitly obvious on like my app profile, but I think an important part of who I am just as a person, as an individual is that cancer is like a piece of my identity and I own that proudly. And so if someone were to do like internet sleuthing, they could easily find like, you know, my Instagram, whatever they would see that I'm like a cancer person. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, in this balancing of, you know, I, I don't put it right on my profile necessarily, but it's, it's not a secret. And so I'm still kind of figuring out what works best for me. And I think, um, one thing I just keep in mind is that you don't have to have like, 
one method forever, um, especially if you're exploring the world of dating, you can allow yourself some freedom to like, maybe with this person it just doesn't feel like the right time to bring it up and maybe we'll never really get to that point. Maybe someone else you date later, it just comes naturally. You never know. Um, and so I, I'm still exploring that myself and um, the one thing I would share from my um, marriage that didn't work out, um, you know, a part that I really struggled with was that my partner couldn't accept that, you know, post-active treatment, cancer is still going to be a thing in my life. And so if I do want to pursue a serious relationship in the future, I need to make sure that that person is able to wrap their mind around that, that like, even though I'm not actively in treatment anymore, they need to play a role that's like understanding what I've been through and acknowledging that like it still is a thing. It's not in a box in the past. So that's something I need to just acknowledge with any future partner. Yeah. I think also... Obviously, I have a bias, but I think we need to stop looking at a history of cancer as a deficit. Like, it's given you so many skills, and you're clearly strong and capable and durable. You know, like, you're an emotionally resilient person. Having, you know, physical health is not a privilege afforded to everybody, and it's definitely not a privilege afforded to anyone eventually. You know, like we all outgrow the privilege of health if we being are lucky alive, enough. We all outgrow being alive. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's right. It's coming for us all. But, um, you know, like I think that there's such a focus on like healthy and like, how do I look healthy and how do I, you know, get back to healthy weight and like how, but like, I think what's so much more important for me because I will never be healthy again. I'm, I'm just, it's not in the cards for me. So what instead is important to me is like building relationships with people who are emotionally healthy, who are resilient people who are, um, you know, emotionally intelligent, who have like a lot of resources in their toolkits, because that's going to be the most fulfilling way to spend my time. You know, well, it's a great filter also, right? Cancer provides a pretty great filter for like, who are the good people and who are the people that you don't need to spend time yeah. trying to get them to do the work. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think, if you don't want to disclose, obviously you don't have to, but it doesn't have to be like a, my secret shame, you know, kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It can be like, I got through this and how rad am I? You know, <laughs> like, I think that that is just a perspective that I would like to offer people who are considering when they need to tell people that they have a history of cancer, especially breast cancer, not to negate that it's tough. Cause I know it is. Um, there's one last letter that we have. It's another non letter, and I know that it is. I have a personal history, and you do too. How do you deal with being misdiagnosed? Um, I was told I had breast cancer in both breasts, and my treatment plan was either a double mastectomy or removal of one breast with three lumps and a lumpectomy in the other breast. I chose a double mastectomy. I'm heartbroken and confused how this could have happened. Now I don't trust anything the doctors tell me without a third opinion. So I don't know how this person, what the actual diagnosis ended up being, but it is, it's just like such a betrayal, you know? It's like you thought you were putting your trust in the right people, you followed through, you did all the right things, and then the rug was just pulled out from under you. Um, 
I was initially told that I was stage two and had like maybe one lymph node, one or two iffy lymph nodes is what they said. And, um, like Nathan said, we live about an hour North of Seattle and I'm lucky enough to be within driving distance of Fred Hutchinson cancer center, which is world-class love it. Love them so much. They also have very good snacks (laughs) for free available to anybody. Um, but you know, I told my local hospital, I'm going to go get a second opinion just because I can, you know, like it's paid for by my insurance. So I'm going to do it. And I should have known when the nurse navigator at that small hospital said, Oh, I don't, I don't really think you need to do that. Um, and I did, and I did the whole sit down with the three doctors, with the surgeon and the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist. And for one thing, it was such a cool experience to be in this room with three like badass female physicians um, who were just on it. Like they were laser focused on me. And I had never experienced that before. I have a history of like being underinsured and I've gone to free clinics and I've, you know, I've never been treated like a priority by healthcare professionals. And so this was really cool. But the medical oncologist was like, I have your films, your imaging from the local hospital. And have they gone over them with you? And I said, no. And she was like, well, I see what they told you. They told you you were stage two, minimal lymph node involvement. And I see you had a bone scan and stuff. And um, she was like, I want to tell you what we see. We see... um, Oh, this is important. They had told me that the primary tumor was about four centimeters. (laughs) And she was like, we see about 14 centimeters of cancer in your breast. (laughs) And it's lobular, so it's like, it's got little fingers, it's got tendrils. Um, So she was like, we see about 14 centimeters. Um, I see extensive lymph node involvement. And you've got a lot of spinal lesions and lesions in your ribs. And of course I was like, and like, she likes to tease me about this because I immediately of course started crying and I didn't have any history with cancer. So I didn't know. All I heard was like stage four cancer and I'm like crying and I'm like, do I have to stop and get a casket on the way home? (laughs) And now she's like, Oh, Hey, like you're no evidence of active disease. Remember when you asked me if you had to stop and get a casket on the way home. Um, (laughs) but like, It was such a complete betrayal. And now, even though I love her so much, I still have that shred of doubt left from when I saw this very nice man who seemed very capable and confident telling me that I had stage two and it was all going to be fine. It's just going to be a bump in the road and you're going to get back to your normal life. And then it was like, whoops, sorry. Don't, don't know what happened there. Um, but it is, it's just like such a betrayal. Did you, I mean, you had to advocate for yourself so hard. I did. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. So I, I went into the whole experience, not having any like medical stuff in my past. And so I didn't know, I think simply like empowering people and letting them know, like mistakes unfortunately do happen, um, in diagnosis, misdiagnosis. Um, and it's okay to follow up, ask more questions, see other doctors. Like you're not cheating on your first doctor, you know, all these things that I didn't know and nobody was really telling me. And I, I eventually figured it out, but 
I think just as much as we can reminding everyone that like that's okay and that's you taking care of you and of course we do want to trust our doctors but um, if you have any kind of hesitation or you need more information like Mm -hmm. we all deserve to have that information and to feel comfortable and to not feel like ashamed or you know put down by asking more questions like this is your health and so you really just have to look out for yourself and um, I think it's just empowering to, to in, encourage other people to do that. And it's, it's what you should do. Yeah. Well, and the letter writer says, like, I don't trust anything without a third opinion. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Like, that's There's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Get a third opinion. If yeah, that's do it. Get a fifth opinion. And, like, your yeah. oncologist, my oncologist, what I love so much about her is sometimes she'll be like, you know what? I'm not totally sure about this, but I know somebody at, like, OHSU that is so smart about this. Like, let me, like, do you want to, do you want me to hook you up with her? Do you want me to contact her? Like, it's just, I feel like there's this new wave of, of doctors who understand that collaboration makes it better for everybody. They want success, right? Like they want to have patients that are staying alive longer, that are having, you know, fewer side effects and stuff. Cause that's good for them. That gives, gives them a sense of professional satisfaction also. And so, like, they now, they now seem to be getting the picture that, like, when they take better care of us, we're happier, they're happier in their jobs. Like, I think that there's nothing wrong with shopping for an oncologist until you find one that's the one. If you're able to. I mean, if you're able to, yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's, as much as possible. that's yeah. the crappy thing is so many people have to deal with, like, access issues. Um, but, you know, COVID was beneficial in that it opened up the possibility of virtual mm. telehealth appointments and things like that for people. And so I know a lot of physicians are doing, like, second opinions via telehealth now. Um, and I do know Fred Hutchinson is, is one. So if, you know, especially if you're a, a lobular breast cancer person, we have Dr. Hannah Linden um, at Fred Hutch who is... Uh, like leading lobular breast cancer expert. And I know she does second opinions via telehealth consult. So uh, if you can't get to Seattle, that might be something for you to consider. That's the end of letters. That is the end of letters. Um, I haven't seen any mice here. No. But there may be a rat or two or one. Just rats. Rats, rats, rats. For those who don't listen to the podcast, every episode I cover something that's cool happening um, in the cancer world, and I am not a research scientist. I am not a scientist of any variety, in fact. Um, so I just, you know, I try to like make it accessible. I sometimes am trying to understand it even as I am <laughs> explaining it to you. So um, today we're going to be talking about the cannabis problem. <laughs> Um, so just to tell you all ahead of time, again, all of the articles I'm citing will be in the show notes for you. Lots of research studies that I'm citing. Please feel free to peruse them. They're all really interesting, in my opinion. 
Um, so lots of cancer patients use cannabis. Um, lots of people used it before cancer for different reasons, recreation, you know, for anxiety, for pain. Um, and especially people in like marginalized popula populations who are underinsured, like lots of people use cannabis for, um, in the place of medications that they can't access through a prescriber. Um, and they want to continue using it. And lots of people obviously get a lot of benefit from cannabis as cancer patients. They use it post-diagnosis as a complementary treatment um, or for palliative care. And I just want to say, because I don't think it gets said enough, palliative does not mean end of life. It just means comfort care. It means making you comfortable, alleviating your side effects, alleviating discomfort. Um, just because it's used for end-of-life care doesn't mean when somebody offers you palliative care, they've like written you off. You do not have to go pick up a casket on the way home. Um, or, or earn. Or earn. Yes. Or earn. <clears throat> Nothing. No vessels for your body. <clears throat> so um, drug laws in the United States and like taboos and stuff about drug use and the fact that cannabis is naturally occurring make it really hard to study the effects of cannabis on breast cancer. Um, it's hard to study how it measures up against other palliative treatments and like what effects it has on our meds. Mm -hmm. But in some places it has been studied. So I am going to be citing some of those studies. Um, there was a 2013 study on THC suppressing estrogen induced proliferation of ER positive human breast cancer cells. Um, it's MFC seven cells. And, um, so the kind of summary of that is that they use the estrogen receptor positive human breast cancer cell line, MCF7, as an experimental model and showed that this THC exposure markedly suppressed the estradiol-induced cell proliferation. Um, like I said, I'm going to put that study up in the, in the show notes for you. So that's really cool. It means that it, it decreased the cell pro proliferation, which would, you know, hopefully curb metastasis. Um, Oh, wait, so it slows it down. Yes. Okay. It sorry. curbs. Proliferation. I was just trying to get the... It stops yeah. cell proliferation. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Don't do what Donnie Don't does. <laughs> um, so, unfortunately, the bad the bad news about, about using cannabis, um, aside from the taboos and all of that, um, and the fact that it's unavailable in lots of parts of the United States... Um, there are some studies that say that it's actually bad for certain cancer, breast cancer subtypes. Um, this uh, cannabinol, this particular chemical in cannabis, um, has been shown to enhance breast cancer growth and metastasis by suppressing anti-tumor immune response. Um, so that's a bummer. Yeah, you can't. That's right. We figured that out, right? Like, yeah. So... So yes, there, there are a lot of kind of caveats and that's why it's so important to have good data. Um, and we don't have good data, but there's the, some good news is that there's a study on estrogen receptor positive human breast cancer cells. So that it, it did show that it markedly suppressed the cell proliferation. Um, it was an in vitro study. And that has kind of been borne out in what there are two, two nurses who have really devoted their careers to studying this and advocating for cannabis use for breast cancer patients. Their names are Kristen Wolschlegel and Elizabeth Sherwood. Um, and they're both RNs. And they've done just a ton of work. They have a lot, a lot of resources available. And they do even like... Um, 
meetings with you, like virtual meetings. They'll do consults for you if you need some more specialized help in figuring out how to use cannabis or if it's right for you. Um, but so some of the, the problems are that tens of thousands of cancer patients, obviously breast cancer patients, are using medicinal cannabis, medical cannabis, um, without any, gui- any guidance from their healthcare professionals because maybe your healthcare professionals aren't comfortable with it or they don't have enough data to support their recommendations and so they just don't want to even touch it. Um, And most clinicians, honestly, and most people using cannabis believe that there are no real risks of adverse drug interactions. And that's from a survey, a kind of longitudinal survey. So, Well, it's legal in Washington. Have you talked about it at your... I have. have So if you're lucky enough to be in a state where, where marijuana is legal and you happen to be at like an NCI designated facility that has, um, an integrative medicine department, which I am, you might have a lot of luck finding somebody who is able to give you recommendations on um, drug interactions or like using medical cannabis for palliative care. Um, But a lot of people just don't have that available to them, which sucks. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's, It's an incredibly effective form of plant medicine that a lot of people, most people don't have access to. Um, So one of the big things that I think people don't know about um, using cannabis is that there are really specific contraindications with a lot of breast cancer medications. And basically anything with a grapefruit warning on it, um, if your pill bottle says do not consume grapefruit, and that means like all of the fun, cool other things like grapefruit, like pomelos and blood oranges, um, you can't use cannabis. You consider pomelos fun? I do consider okay. pomelos <laughs> fun. Blood oranges? I mean, our kids love them, but I didn't know they were fun. I think oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, you just break checking. open a blood orange and it's a I've lovely surprise. I've never seen you enjoy them like that, so I don't know. Keep okay. it to myself. Maybe right. I'm feeling the judgment. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Maybe I feel the judgment, no judgment. so I keep enjoy my excitement them. to myself. Pomelos are exciting. <laughs> um... So the deal with the grapefruit warnings, and it's CBD specifically, but you can't really separate it unless you are going to a really specific like bud tender um, that offers separated compounds. Um, it's the CYP450 family of enzymes that's responsible for metabolizing several cannabinoids, including CBD. And so specifically the CYP3A4, which is an important enzyme within that family, does that job. Um, but during that process, CBD interferes with that CYP3A4. Um, and it's in charge of metabolizing about 60% of clinically prescribed medications. Um, and that's why there are so many medications that come with that grapefruit warning. Um, So what happens is if the CBD is inhibiting that CYP3A4, it can't work as effectively to break down the medications in our system. So what ends up happening is like there are a few situations that are possible. Um, You take CBD while you're on the medication and your body can't process the CBD effectively, so there's no point. Um, Or your body is metabolizing your medication too slowly and you end up having more medication in your system than is intended. And that can contribute to like toxicity. Um, Even if you're on your normal dose, like it just basically backs up. Um, Obviously, you know, we don't want any more side effects. 
Goodbye, everybody that's leaving. Supply safe. Um, some substances also speed up the work of this. So if your body's metabolizing the medication too fast, you're not getting all the benefits. So like a lot of people, just because there's no standard of care for this this medication, this plant medication that lots of people are using, they're they're using it without realizing that they could be totally negating their cancer treatments. Um, so obviously the best results for people with breast cancer using cannabis is when both are optimized. So you want optimized conventional and cannabis therapies used together. And hopefully you are able to find a provider who's willing to do some research and do some legwork for you so that you can come together if it's something that sounds good for you. Because obviously, like we all know, cancer, cancer people like to use it for nausea, for pain, for anxiety, for, you know, fun, for fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't even want to get into this aspect of it necessarily too much, even though I didn't mention the, the actual, um, the actual medicinal anti-cancer effects. Um, but those are pretty, pretty well documented and you can read more about that. But, you know, for palliative stuff, um, it, it can't be beat really. So, um, that's, that's my little ditty about cannabis. All of the info will be in the show notes for you to see. Um, and I think yeah, that's awesome. That's, um, especially the, um, the telehealth, what the nurse is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. Cool. So is, is really awesome. Um, so thank you so much to Megan. Please check out her website. There's so much amazing writing. Helpful writing is a, is an incredible resource for the cancer community. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. What's the, what's the website address again? The... Uh, it's thriverwriter.com. 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 Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for being here. So thank, thank you for you those for of you who gave letters and read letters. Thank you. Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehy. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.